This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you, Chancellor Connolly, and thank you, Dean DeAlavicar, for hosting uh, UC Global Health Day. We want to um, thank the University of California, Riverside, for hosting us at their beautiful campus and um, for for hosting UC Global Health Day and for putting together what we think will be a a wonderful day and and a wonderful event. Uh, We want to just briefly mention some of the major accomplishments of the UC Global Health Institute, those being um, the, the evolution of what will be unique in the system and um, that is a tri-campus master's degree in global, global health being led by Marilyn Yates from UC Riverside along with Karen Nelson and others and we really appreciate the hard work that's gone into that effort. We also appreciate the fact that we're able to encompass many campuses of the system to really try to do something transformative that will make a difference in global health in the world. It's a pleasure and I'm sure I, I want all of you to, to join me in, in welcoming um, uh, Dr. Haile DeBas to UC Global Health Day. Dr. DeBas has had a difficult year health-wise, but one has to remember, and if you see him, talk to him about this, this was his vision. And it's his vision and it's his, his inspiration that keeps us going and maintains us. We think it will be a very good day. We also want to thank um, the uh, students who, on their own, affiliated with us, but the students who formed the UC Haiti Initiative and won a special award from the regents of the University of California. I don't know if there are any representatives from the UC Haiti Initiative here today, but if there are, I'd like to ask you to stand. And thank you for the work that you've done. in establishing a special relationship between the University of California and uh, the University of Haiti. Another major accomplishment that I really think also represents the essence of what we're trying to do is a program we call GLOCAL. And that program is being led by Dr. Craig Cohen from the University of California, San Francisco, and Dr. Stephanie Strathy from the University of California, San Diego. And the idea is to allow undergraduates, graduates, um, postdocs and young faculty the opportunity to go to one of 20 locations around the world in which UC faculty are doing research and to do research on a whole variety of topics and to develop careers in global health. We really think that efforts like the UCGHI and the component parts like the UC Haiti Initiative and GloCal and the Tri-Campus Masters are going to create the leaders of the future. And we see you as the leaders of the future, and that's why it's so nice to see you here today. We want to present a special certificate of appreciation to Dr. Dale Alicar, who is also the 
uh, recently named Dean of the School of Public Policy here at UC Riverside. And I would like to uh, read this. This is presented to Anil B. Dalalikar in recognition and appreciation of your commitment to global health through education, research, and service. We thank you for your enduring vision, leadership, and support of the UC Global Health Institute. Please accept our deepest gratitude and wishes for future success as you take on your new ventures. We're very happy for you. And it's, it's a testament to everything you brought to UCGHI and what you will bring to the new School of Public Policy. And with that, I would also like to introduce you. But thank you. Thank you, Anil, very much. This was not on the agenda. <laughs> so this does come as a surprise to me. But thank you so much. This, uh, the appreciation is reciprocal. I have, uh, this has been one of the most exciting initiatives I have ever participated in in my entire academic life. These last uh, five years working with Tom and Hailey and all of you uh, have been extremely rewarding. Uh, and, and have been a lot of fun. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, popularly commonly known to his friends as Zeke. Uh, this is a very special occasion for us because when, when uh, Zeke agreed to come out here last summer for UC Global Health Day, he thought he would be, he would have a very relaxing, February, and he was even thinking of coming out here and going for a hike in the Coachella Valley after he was done with our UC Global Health Day. But as it turned out, and I think all of us are familiar with this, his calendar sort of quickly became quite congested, and he told me that these six weeks uh, around UC Global Health Day are sort of the worst period of his life. <laughs> okay. And so he literally arrived at midnight last night and is leaving at noon today. Uh, so he made all the trip from Philadelphia to Riverside just to be with us for uh, these one and a half hours. So we really appreciate that. Uh, well, he doesn't need much of an introduction. Uh, and since I would be cutting into his time with a long and lengthy introduction, I'll sort of be rather sparse. Uh, he doesn't need an introduction because those of you who read the New York Times regularly uh, probably know him quite well by now because he writes a regular op-ed piece for the New York Times. It, has it been about a year since you have started doing that? Uh, but he is the Vice Provost for Global Initiatives uh, as well as the Diane and Robert Levy University Professor and Chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he was, before he joined Penn, he was the founding chair of the Department of Bioethics at the National Institutes of Health, and he held that position until just about a year and a half ago when he joined Penn. And uh, before that, he served as a special advisor on health policy to the director of the Office of Management and Budget and the National Economic Council. So if you may recall, Dr. Emanuel actually served on President Clinton's healthcare task force uh, and, of course, he has served on many other commissions, including the National Bioethics Advisory Commission uh, and the Bioethics Panel of the Pan-American Healthcare Organization. Uh, both of us, I came to know him uh, several years ago when both of us happened to be working on, and, and Haile is working on that, and several other people in this room also are working on the disease control project, uh, DCPN3 now, is it? DCP3. 
Uh, and so uh, we have sort of interacted at, at various meetings of the DCP, and, and it's been a pleasure sort of uh, uh, getting to know Zeke. But without further ado, I'm going to let him speak to us. He is going to talk about who gets the next dollar in international health aid, priority setting for global health. So let's give a hand. It's a great pleasure to be here. Let's see if I can do this without screwing it up. Uh, and uh, it, it really is, uh, I think this is a... Uh, fundamentally difficult topic, and as you'll see, I don't think it's one that is uh, resolved, like most topics related to the allocation of uh, scarce resources. So I, I like to begin with thinking about uh, what the diseases are that we really care about, and uh, we certainly need to think about uh, diseases that cause death in low-income countries uh, that shape our thinking about global health. So it's a leading cause of death, malaria, HIV, AIDS, diarrhea, prematurity and low birth weight, low respiratory infections. If I were teaching a class, you'd all have clickers and we'd get the responses so I could. Um, so here are the top 10 causes of death in low income countries. And uh, you can see that the number one cause, and it has been for a long time, is lower respiratory infections, followed by diarrheal diseases followed by HIV, and then a non-communicable disease, ischemic heart disease, followed by malaria. So if you keep those things in your head uh, for death, um, you can see that respiratory disease and diarrheal disease are sort of traditional, classic, uh, infectious diseases. Um, and as the debate about uh, how to allocate resources between communicable and non-communicable comes up, you can understand that, that heart disease uh, is, is number four. Um, and then if you look at uh, regions of the world, uh, let's see if I can figure out how to do this. Oh, no. Um, anyway, uh, you can see how the distribution by age goes in terms of the fact that uh, in Africa and uh, Eastern Mediterranean and Southeast Asia, it's still kids 0 to 14 who carry a substantial brunt of the burden, whereas all the way at the high-income countries at the far end, you know, people live a long time and they die of uh, uh, the usual non-communicable diseases, heart disease, cancer being the leading two. Um, if you look at, uh, focus in on, on children, uh, you can see uh, the number of deaths per thousand children. And again, in Africa, it's up at 30 deaths to zero to four. Uh, high income countries, it's not zero, but it's pretty negligible. Uh, we're down at the round one uh, death per thousand uh, uh, children. Uh, and it gives you a sense of how much uh, there is still to be done in global health. Um, if you shift from deaths, which we could argue whether it's a good or a bad indicator of uh, or what we should focus on, to a burden of disease, and then you break it down by communicable and non-communicable diseases, and then by injuries, you can see that in uh, Africa, uh, um, it's still communicable diseases, communicable diseases, communicable diseases, and the non-communicable non-communicable diseases are much less. Even in the Eastern Mediterranean, they're split, um, and you have to get to fairly developed countries uh, where the non-communicable overtake, in terms of dolly loss, uh, the communicable uh, diseases. 
So again, if you look at uh, the Dolly loss, um, it pretty much mirrors uh, death. So there's sort of not completely, but pretty well interchangeable. And you can see that lower respiratory infections, uh, substantial Dolly loss followed by diarrheal diseases and HIV, malaria moves up to uh, uh, the fourth spot. And ischemic heart disease by Dolly loss is way down at the bottom here, you know, ninth among uh, uh, the top 10 causes uh, in terms of uh, total Dolly loss. And this gives you a nice contrast between high-income and low-income countries as to what the real problems are. So in the high-income countries, again, if you look at Dolly's, which includes uh, mortality, you know, depression, which we tend to underestimate in the United States, uh, uh, is number one, ischemic heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, uh, Alzheimer's, alcohol use, uh, on down. Uh, and you look at low-income countries and you're still in the non-communicable disease realm, uh, you're in the communicable disease realm in the first five, uh, first four categories. And then uh, other items, they're not non-communicable diseases, but prematurity and low birth weight, uh, neonatal infections and other, and birth asphyxia and trauma, if you put them all together, pretty substantial problems. You have to get down to eight and nine before you get a non-communicable disease of any significance there. And for those of you Worry, you know, tuberculosis is down at the bottom here in, in terms of the top 10. Now, not on those lists, <coughs> um, uh, many of you will notice, is uh, neglected tropical diseases. And uh, many of us think that this is a sort of blind, has been a blind area. They're called neglected for a reason. We have been neglecting them. Uh, and we've been neglecting them for years and years. Um, and I think a major reason we neglect them is that there are almost no deaths, really, from these diseases. They're pretty uh, minimal. We're talking about schistosomiasis um, um, and a lot of the worm uh, infections. Uh, and you can see that while there are very few deaths compared to other things, there are a huge amount of dolly loss, uh, 50 million uh, estimated. There uh, has been uh, for many years a sort of systematic undercounting of the dolly loss uh, of this by the World Health Organization. Um, interestingly, uh, one of the major problems of these neglected tropical diseases and why you get such a substantial dolly loss is that they really, they affect cognitive function, they affect economic uh, uh, productivity, uh, and uh, it's a huge problem. We used to have substantial neglected tropical disease in the United States, particularly in the south, uh, in the southern belt, up through the 20s, 30s, and early 40s in the United States. And it was one reason that there was a very deep prejudice in the United States about people in the south being lazy and stupid uh, uh, is thought to be related to the widespread neglected tropical diseases in that area. Maternal child health is also a substantial uh, problem. Uh, we have had about 500,000 deaths among mothers in low-income countries uh, from uh, uh, birth conditions. Uh, the three big issues are obstructed labor, not being able to deliver the baby because of size, uh, hemorrhage around the delivery, women not stopping to bleed, and then uh, postpartum sepsis due to infections, uh, and that 500,000 deaths roughly and 29 million dollars has remained unfortunately very static for a long time. We have not done a great job of impacting that. 
childhood conditions, pertussis, measles, tetanus, uh, fair number of deaths, and Dolly's lost, um, and again, major cause of problem uh, before age five. Um, that's a very quick uh, look at the uh, death rate and burden of diseases. Um, but what I think is, is the big challenge is, what do we do to address it? We have uh, global health aid, and what, how do we think about addressing these global health problems? So in 2011, there was $27.7 billion given in development assistance for health. Uh, now, depends on how familiar or used to uh, billions of dollars uh, you are, um, but $27 billion is one one-hundredth of what the United States spends on health in this country. Last year, we spent $2.8 trillion on health in the United States. Um, so this is a, a small fraction of that, but this is what's given worldwide by all uh, countries. And you can see, importantly, that this has actually been increasing, and in the last decade, uh, when President Bush was in office, a substantial rise in global health assistance. Now, there are many factors that uh, explain that, uh, the assistance that we gave through PEPFAR, and I'll demonstrate that, the recognition that there was much more to do, the Gates Foundation, uh, the fact that there were uh, lots of effective treatments for HIV which we needed uh, to get out. But there was a sort of worldwide recognition of the importance of global health um, and the fact that there were things we could do. Uh, so you can see where the money goes. Uh, HIV AIDS uh, dominates that uh, group. Uh, other assorted things, but the next identifiable maternal child health gets about $4 billion, uh, so less than 65% uh, uh, of what HIV AIDS gets. Malaria, $2 billion. Health sector supports so are strengthening hospital facilities, uh, training, uh, a little over $1 billion. TB, $1 billion. Uh, Non-communicable diseases, uh, as we like to say in my business, down into the weeds. Um, Here's the graph of uh, health assistance by uh, leading countries. You can see the United States has really taken off during the uh, President Bush's time. Uh, Norway, uh, despite being a country of four to five million people, uh, dominant player in this area. Uh, and here's why. If you look at the per capita aid by the top 10 countries for total aid, Norway is, you know, double anyone else. Sweden is number two, um, and you can see the United States, uh, while it contributes the most in absolute dollars, uh, we're down at about uh, a third of what the Norwegians are giving in uh, uh, per capita assistance. Here's health aid as a percent of GDP, um, and uh, just health aid. This isn't total foreign assistance. Uh, you can see Norway's at the top, Luxembourg, Sweden. We're number four uh, there. So, um, uh, and, and Great Britain uh, is number five. All of you are familiar with the UN Millennium Development Goals, of which we will be very unsuccessful in achieving them, but uh, they are uh, to reduce child mortality, to improve maternal health, 
uh, to combat that those sort of 500,000 deaths and, and 27 million dolly loss to uh, mothers dying, combat HIV, AIDS, malaria, and other diseases, and provide universal access to basic essential health benefits. Um, uh, in each of these, we're going to make progress, but we're not going to uh, achieve the Millennium Development Goals. Now, I want to concentrate. As I said, we're spending $27.7, $28 billion on global health. Um, I want to focus us in on the problem that we have a gap. We have a persistent gap in global health assistance. And the question is, what do we do in addressing that? And the reason I want to focus on that is because uh, this is a situation in which we have absolute scarcity. We will never close this gap, uh, at least not in my lifetime or Anil's lifetime. And uh, the big challenge is, what do you do when you won't solve that problem? How do you make decisions? This is a big, I think, in global health, the biggest public policy problem. Um, and it is, uh, uh, fair to say, highly controversial. I can show you the scars. Um, so. According to the WHO, uh, the total additional cost for getting everyone basic health care services uh, um, between 2010 and 2015, $251 billion, seven years, uh, not uh, till 2015 from 2008. Um, so it's roughly $36 billion a year, with $151 billion of the total for Sub-Saharan Africa alone. Okay, So the additional per capita cost starts at 14.2 in 2009 and ends at 29 in 2015. So the important number to keep in mind is that additional costs th that we need is $251 billion over seven years. So if you scaled it up for the 49 lowest countries, right, you could avert 23 million deaths, you could avert 4 million child deaths annually, bring it down from 8 uh, to 4 million, which would be pretty amazing. 39 out of the 49 countries would reach their NDG target for child survival, and at least 22 countries would achieve their 2015 target for maternal mortality. Okay, so not all the NGD goals, but two of uh, arguably the most important. Um, so $36 billion shortfall per year, but if you could achieve it, pretty amazing. Um, so there's a funding gap of $20 billion for Sub-Saharan Africa and roughly $35, $36 billion for 49 lowest income countries per year. That's what we're missing. And here is what that gap looks like displayed graphically. So we're at $27, $28 billion. Um, and we need 36 uh, more per year, roughly, over this time. Uh, and the question is, unless you think that gap is going to be closed, what do you do recognizing that that gap is going to be there? And by the way, it's not going to end suddenly in 2015 or 2016. So if the global community, uh, uh, sorry, let me go back. The tragedy, as I sort of hinted at, but I'll say very explicitly now, the tragedy is this isn't a big gap, right? It may sound big, $36 billion a year. Uh, I gave it to you in the context of the U.S. healthcare spending. You know, we could, we, it, it's another 1% of our spending roughly, 1.5% of our spending per year. We could close this gap. Uh, uh, there's almost nothing else we could do that would do as much good for $36 billion. Uh, but it ain't going to happen. All right? Let me just show you how easy it is to solve. 
If the global community increased development assistance by 0.05% of the world GDP, all right, the gap would be closed. For those of you who don't do math that fast in your head, that's a nickel for every $10, right? It's a trivial amount of money, right? We could close that gap with just 0.2% of our GDP, okay? 20 cents for every $10. 1% more of the health spending we have per year, we could close that gap, all right? It's a, let me repeat, it's just not a lot of money. But we're not gonna close that gap, all right? That is a tragedy. But from a public policy standpoint, if you sit where I did at the Office of Management Budget or you sit in the Department of State or you sit at the World Health Organization, right? You can't just be paralyzed by the fact that a tragedy is gonna happen and the world's not gonna answer the tragedy. We know that these tragedies happen a lot and we're not gonna solve those problems. So the question from a policymaker standpoint is, what do you do when you have that gap? What do you do when you're not gonna close that gap? So let me say, and this is born of, of lots of hard experience, there is no policy framework that is shared among the people in the global health community and defensible, sort of justifiable, on ethical and economic terms for how to address the fact that that gap occurs. And the way I put it in the title of this speech and is, you know, when you have another bolus of money that you can allocate to global health, where does, that go, where does that money go? You have choices. How do you justify where you're gonna put that money? So let me just tell you from uh, experience in the, in the uh, trenches, you know, the result is a lot of ad hoc decisions uh, that tend to be political, and not the elevated political sense, but, you know, interest group politics. By political decisions, I mean, you know, you basically got advocacy and the interest groups pushing their particular cause, and in the United States, that is typically disease-related. You've got people coming in for HIV, people coming in for malaria, people coming in for TB, people coming in for whatever, almost never for neglected tropical diseases, I'll say that. Uh, and on the, that's the advocates. On the other side, you've got politicians who have their favorite funding area, and again, they typically are disease-related. Uh, you've got uh, people in Congress who you know, are for, say, water purification. You've got people in Congress who are for uh, uh, giving assistance to women and getting uh, good birthing kits available to women. There are plenty of people who are for HIV uh, or there's um, uh, malaria advocates. Uh, so I would say that from my experience, what you end up with is political decisions that tend to be disease-focused, because that's what people latch onto, tend to be mortality-focused, right? One of the things you like to tout if you're a politician or if you're an advocacy group is, we reduced the number of people dying from disease X. Easy to get a hold of, much easier to sell than say we reduced DALI levels on this disease since no one outside of, you know, probably 10,000 people in America know what a dolly is, right? I'm not joking, you know, you, we talk to each other, we think, well, everyone knows what a dolly is, we think that's our currency of communication. You know, go outside your group, go into the dorms here, wherever the undergraduates are, and just ask them what a dolly is, right? Uh, typically there's lack of a strategic plan, so it's not just 
it's how, how is this going to play out over the next 20 years, right? Politicians, they're focused on the next election, right? Policymakers or academics are focused on maybe the next five years. Uh, so there's a big, heavy focus on short-term objectives and lack of focus on sustainability of programs. Um, I would also say that uh, certainly many people don't want to address this question of how do we set priorities, right? It's always going to be controversial. And again, I have plenty of scars to prove that. The moment you say this ought to be prioritized over that, the people who advocate that take out their knives, right? Because they're going to get the short end of the stick. And it's something we tend not to do. And it's not just in global health. It's throughout in terms of priority setting, all right? In the global health community, it's common to hear, especially from the haves in the global health community, we shouldn't pit diseases against each other, right? Well, if you've got the money coming to you, that's a very convenient thing to say, right? Don't pit my disease against someone else's, but you've already got a lot. And if you're neglected tropical diseases, you don't have a lot, all right? Now, I don't think these are tenable positions, all right? Is it really possible to avoid priority setting? Well, it's possible, but it's not very productive. You don't then get the highest and best use of your added dollars. Is it possible to avoid choosing between what interventions to fund and for which diseases and with what consequences? I don't think so. So let me just reiterate, there's a funding gap. Demand for health care, even minimal health care in the global setting, will exceed the funds available from the world for the foreseeable future. It is not, as best as I can tell, going to get better. And by the way, the sequester ain't going to make it better either. All right? We'd like the available funds for global health to increase. I think the reality is otherwise. And even if they increase, they're not going from $27 billion right, to $60 billion, which is more than a doubling. All right? Ain't going to happen. So I think the only alternative is priority setting. And or we just let the political power game and interest group strength determine what we do. I think those are the two alternatives. I think it's pretty stark. So I'm an ethicist, as you heard from Anil, and I think that we need a better policy than just interest group politics. I don't think that has led to optimal allocation of resources, and I don't think it's ever likely to lead to optimal allocation of resources. So we're often faced with these kinds of decisions, especially if you're a policymaker. Which is more important, giving nets for malaria or ARV medications for HIV AIDS? You've got a bolus of dollars that you might have, which do you do? Or, you know, I could be sort of pessimistic and say, all right, now we're actually going to reduce the budget under sequester. We're going to have to take away from somewhere. Where do we take away from? That would be the negative side. This is phrased, in, I know it doesn't sound like it, but in the positive side. All right, so one choice that you hear debated, and certainly this arose because of the UN uh, meeting a few years ago emphasizing non-communicable diseases, one choice is whether to prioritize non-communicable diseases or communicable diseases. You know, recently, as I mentioned, the UN General Assembly had been a big push to emphasize non-communicable disease conditions. 
Let me say that at least in the 49 low-income countries, the places we ought to be most concerned about from a global health assistance perspective, that makes no sense. It's communicable diseases, communicable diseases, communicable diseases, right? I showed you the data that it's really still communicable diseases in sub-Saharan Africa, that on the DALI score, ischemic heart disease doesn't come in but ninth, right? In low-income countries, 14 million preventable deaths are from communicable diseases, and just 2.5 million deaths are from coronary artery disease, uh, the largest cause of deaths from non-communicable diseases. Chronic non-communicable diseases like heart disease are what policymakers in Washington, uh, when they're not talking to the press, like to say are high-class problems. You know, you got to. Heart disease is your problem, that's good. Whatever the burden from chronic non-communicable disease in low-income countries, it's a small fraction of deaths and dallies, right? Let me just put it to you this way. And by the way, what Neil did mention is I'm an oncologist who deals in cancer. And there's plenty of cancer in sub-Saharan Africa, cervical cancer, lymphomas, breast cancer. But if people are suffering from these chronic conditions, it's a good sign in Africa because it means they're living long enough to get these chronic conditions, right? You don't get heart disease at 30 or at five, right? You get it at 55 and 60. That means that the average lifespan has pretty much increased. So from my standpoint, at least in the 49 poorest countries, the emphasis has to be on, continue to be on, communicable diseases, not non-communicable diseases. That doesn't mean, and let me be clear, since I said that pretty starkly, we shouldn't do anything on chronic non-communicable diseases. Right? But the focus should be on prevention and public health measures that are relatively cheap and have other benefits. So smoking prevention and cessation, whether through taxes or other things, great cuts across lung disease, heart disease, cancers. Unfortunately, not happening in a big way, uh, but I think it's a very important item. HPV and HPV vaccinations that prevent cancers, cervical cancers, and hepatomas, very important, especially HPV, since a lot of younger women can get cervical cancer and die. So I think that's a very important uh, intervention. Uh, as well as PASMIRS and cervical cancer screening with acetic acid, uh, very uh, cheap interventions and uh, can, can be very effective. So I don't want to say we should do nothing. I'm talking about priority setting. But once you're into the non-communicable side, if I've convinced you that the non-communicable, uh, once you're into the communicable side, if I've convinced you that the communicable side, is, at least in the 49 poorest countries of the parts that ought to be emphasized. What, how do you prioritize the various interventions you have? Again, recognizing that you're not going to close that gap. Do you focus on lives saved, the number of life years you saved, which interventions are cheapest, which are most visible, most powerful, most economically or socially productive? Do you emphasize teachers or doctors or other in their pro productive years, or do you emphasize kids? All of these are very important decisions. Every single one of them, I want to suggest, has big problems. 
which I think is one of the reasons we don't have a shared framework. They're all controversial. So if you focus on lives saved, right, we want to save the most lives, right? Well, what about the number of years the people who you save have left to live or prognosis? Don't you really not only care about the total number of lives saved, but also the prognosis of those people and how many years they're going to have? Don't you also care about the quality of life? Not everyone's life who's saved is going to have 100% normal life. And don't you also care about whether the people who you save need chronic care continuously at some cost, or whether you can do it as a one-off, as it were, and cure them? Personally, it seems to me that all of these actually also matter, not just live safe. So when you look at debt, total debts, you tend to miss these, at least these three other factors. All things being equal, it's obviously better to save more lives than fewer lives. Save lives with long prognoses, so saving children as opposed to saving 40-year-olds. Returning people to normal, high-quality life, so actually curing them of their illness and returning them to that normal, high-quality life without the need for chronic medications. At least in global health, the default standard for evaluating impact among global health interventions has been DALI's. That's the theory. Let me say, in reality, we hardly use it in the policy-making circles um, and to inform priority setting. That's, again, mostly my experience. But even if you look at the Dolly Save, and I apologize for this being a very busy slide. This is from uh, the Disease Control Priorities uh, uh, Program. Um, and you look at various, and it's a little old, it's, uh, you look at various interventions, you can see that there's a very wide range, the x-axis, I don't know how well you can see it, is cost-effectiveness ratio in US dollars per Dolly averted. Um, and you can see it ranges from not close to zero, but beginning roughly at five and going up to 100,000. Even in the United States, 100,000 is a sort of controversial threshold. So in the United States, we're already way out there in cabbages, right? But you can see, for example, down here, you know, malaria interventions are down in the uh, five to ten dollar per dolly averted, whereas a while ago, before prices came down, HIV antiretroviral therapy was in the $500 to $1,000 difference, a hundredfold price difference. Using dollies, I certainly think, at least as a first cut, is better than what we're doing today in the global health system. Uh, there's lots of reasons I think we don't do it. It lacks mass appeal. It's a black box, right? Again. There are maybe 10,000 people in the United States who really understand what it's about. The mass of people who you can motivate by, you know, uh, nets for all, don't get it. Uh, it invites a tax because it has a big emphasis on cost. You see dollars is the first thing. It tends to focus on interventions, right, looking at particular interventions rather than strengthening health systems overall through facilities, training, coordination supply chains. Um, and one of the biggest, from an ethical standpoint, is it tends to uh, ignore certain issues like the distribution of benefits uh, and other considerations like uh, people who uh, uh, might uh, 
have disabilities or other problems. So, for example, just to be concrete about the last one is, it's almost a truism that delivering an intervention in an urban area in sub-Saharan Africa is going to be cheaper than delivering the exact same intervention in a rural area. And so you bias, if you're used alleys, you're going to bias your interventions towards urban areas than rural areas. Well, you know, it's a legitimate question by someone who happens to live in a rural part of Ethiopia. Why should I be disadvantaged just because of where I live? That just doesn't seem fair at some level with the exact same disease. So one approach is to do head-to-head -head comparisons of dollies with a, you know, modified dollies. It does exacerbate the black box problem, uh, taking account of other values, uh, and like urban-rural, young-old, uh, and then look at things like, if you compare antiretrovirals and maternal care, does taking this richer collection of factors into account make a difference? When you compare antiretrovirals to antibiotics or vaccines for pneumonia, does it make a difference? If DALIs yield much the same with these richer models that take into account these other factors, right, then just let's use the DALIs given some cost, given the fact that we've got a very rich uh, set of models behind that. We have a lot of data. We collect the data based upon DALIs. But if dollies in the richer model differ, then we need to justify the added factors in that richer model, and we look, need to look at what we're going to put in. This is an issue which hasn't been worked on yet. We are, I will say, there's a group of us working, some people from Norway, some people from Britain, some people from the United States, trying to assess these right now and see how much of a difference adding more factors that we might consider ethically relevant to this model. Beyond that, I think that um, there are other factors that we can't easily fit into the DALI model um, that I think we should take into account of when we actually prioritize. One is sustainability. Now, those of you who have followed the Global Health Initiative of President Obama, which I helped develop and craft, it heavily emphasizes sustainability over emergency reactions, right? Emergency interventions tend to be very expensive and often not sustainable and often create their own set of problems because once you've jumped into an emergency, you might create a dependency on what you've done uh, for the long term. And one of the questions is, is, is the intervention you're delivering or uh, the set of interventions, are they sustainable over decades? Uh, I think we have not, not done a good job about this. It's much easier I think in some ways to respond to an emergency like the Haiti earthquake or some other disaster that happens, we feel good about rushing in and patching things up. And then our attention gets diverted two, three years down the line and the question is what's left? Is it really a sustainable change? Uh, my own bias is this has been a terrible, terrible bias in the uh, health, global health care assistance situation where we are too emphasized on emergencies and not emphasized in plotting sustainability. Similarly, I think we have tended not to look, and when you do emergencies, you don't integrate with the delivery system. We certainly, when we rushed in with PEPFAR 
and wanted to scale it up, we created lots of parallel processes, lots of parallel health facilities, lots of parallel other things that weren't integrated with the current delivery system and not the most efficient way of delivering things. And then there's this problem of limited workforce. In most of these poorer countries, they don't have extensive healthcare workforce, and if you divert to one versus another, um, train, uh, investing in training for workforce has not been typically uh, high priority. Again, you can't say we save lives by that training. We can't say we save lives by having uh, more nurses. It's not disease-specific. But I think, if you ask me, these three are incredibly important things we ought to focus on if we really want to have sustainable, long-term change and not just feel good about putting a Band-Aid on. So what would I recommend? And this is where I get into lots of trouble. So immunizations, uh, increasing coverage, and integrating pneumococcus and rotavirus vaccines. We're on the verge of, uh, or we have those available. We've got actually interesting funding mechanisms uh, for these things, uh, IAVI, uh, uh, is rolling them out now. If you remember, both in terms of deaths and dollies, pneumonia and diarrhea, very top, whether you're looking at deaths or disabilities and uh, disability-adjusted life years in the bottom countries, it seems to me these do a good job. Together, if we fully rolled out both these vaccines, we could save a million kids under four. Seems to me really, really good investment. Delivery outcomes. Uh, obstructed uh, uh, pregnancy, hemorrhage, which we have pretty simple intervention without much training needed, uh, and postpartum uh, sepsis. Malaria, we've made tremendous strides. We now know what to do with malaria. We have uh, you know, combined four uh, component interventions, nets, uh, uh, pretreatment, indoor house, pretreatment of pregnant women, household spraying, and quick uh, cheap diagnostics followed by uh, treatment that when you visit villages that have implemented this, you've got 95% drops in two years in terms of malaria. Uh, it's incredibly effective. Our big challenge in malaria is going to be, well, the Nets have a, they're supposed to have a half-life of five years, but they have a half-life more accurately of two or three years. How do we systematically replace them? But we know how to do this in malaria, and I think we need to press on. I was very proud of the fact that the Obama administration, under the uh, Global Health Initiative, we substantially increased our funding for malaria just because it had proven so successful. The big challenges on malaria, besides this net problem, is uh, called uh, Congo and Nigeria, uh, two countries where getting systematic interventions in are hard, but we've got to do those two countries, and we will really, I think, turn the corner on malaria. We have that capability. HIV AIDS prevention. Um, now, there's a lot of things we need to do for prevention. One of the things I think we've done quite poorly at is uh, male circumcision. Uh, we know that it has a tremendous effect. Almost the only ways we end up primarily keeping score on HIV AIDS is how much are we spending and how many people are in ARVs. Great thing about male circumcisions, one-time event, about $70 uh, to do. Uh, you can train someone to do it in two weeks. Uh, it's not a high-skilled intervention, uh, and yet we have not really focused attention. We've known about this now for six, seven years. Uh, it's tremendous effect, and it has not been at the forefront of what we do. In fact, much more at the forefront is let's use ARVs for prevention, uh, despite the fact that it's going to be a problem. 
NTDs, also a billion people are infected with these NTDs. We've underspent. Uh, let me just say that when I took over working at OMB on global health, I think we were spending $35 million a year on NTDs for something that afflicts 100 million, a billion people. And we know that these are very simple interventions. You can give twice a year and really control them. We dramatically increased the funding of that uh, up to $100 million a year. MDR-TB and now total drug-resistant TB, big problems. But that, I think, we need a lot of research on that. Better diagnostics, fortunately we have a diagnostic now that is better, but incredibly expensive. We have one new drug. We need a pool of new drugs, vaccines, in this area before I think we're going to get a handle on it. Here are just some of the things. Childhood immunization, you get about $7 per dolly. Community newborn care, $9 per dolly. Uh, mother and baby total package, $77 per dolly. These are very, very effective interventions. That's my uh, spiel, and I think I've left some time, about 10 minutes or 15 minutes for questions. I'm against using that workforce. They have a big enough problem in most of these countries ed focusing on education. Uh, but I am for, which I think is at the heart of what you're saying, using those sites. So using education sites is a terrific way. You mass the children and then giving them on one day interventions uh, for neglected tropical diseases or immunizations is a very effective method because you don't have to go out and, and chase all of them all the uh, hither and yon. Uh, but teachers are, uh, just like healthcare workers, a scarce commodity in most of these countries, and we should not divert them from the very important job they're doing of educating. Well, I, I, I do think that uh, the problem is, is uh, appealing to the emotions doesn't, as I've suggested, doesn't get you a very rational policy necessarily. It does sustain public interest, uh, and in sometimes, like the Nets case, it, it, it really does correspond with something that's pretty effective. But in other cases, it doesn't necessarily correspond with something really effective. And I, you know, part of the thing is, I think the global health community has to make clear to policymakers that given this gap, we do think that uh, it's most important to figure out how we can get the biggest bang for the buck. And we should not be embarrassed about talking about the biggest bang for the buck. I don't think there's an alternative unless you uh, uh, can close that funding gap. The sequester is not good news for anybody under any circumstances. And I think it's a, uh, uh, it's a real problem because, again, like many things, it it's not prioritized in a rational way, uh, um, and so I don't think that's a good thing. Um, I do think it's very important for the community, let me put it another way. I think when you're trying to make a case, the best case that can be made for global health is that there's almost nothing else that the United States government spends on that is as effective and changing the needle. Right? In terms, whatever terms you want, saving lives, communicating the goodwill of the United States, diplomacy, it really, there's very little, if you look at all the things we do, that is as effective. Maybe some food assistance. But we have a set of interventions that are really, really positive. And I think that's what we have to emphasize uh, over and over again. And I fear that the, uh, uh, that's not 
the, the focus on my disease or this intervention, uh, sometimes detracts from that overall uh, important message. There isn't a general framework. One of the reasons I actually uh, uh, convinced the Norwegians to fund this issue of trying to think about what the global health priorities are and what framework we would have um, is uh, because there's not a general international framework that everyone shares. Uh, the Norwegians have long advocated focusing on women and children, mothers and, and, and children, um, and uh, they and I bonded over the fact that that was, you know, uh, one of the priorities that I put into the Global Health Initiative, along with others. Um, but, you know, their justification is, is no better than our justification for it. And so I think we do need this general think about it, and it's not easy to, to do, but I think very important to work on. I appreciate the fact that so far, at least the tenor of the questions is, is that we have to get away from that because I do think if the, if the sort of educated global health community and the leadership in the, in the academic global health community emphasizes that important shift, uh, it will have a difference. And uh, emphasizing that we need to get away from uh, this uh, narrow uh, uh, disease focus, I think, is going to be really, really important. So all I can say is keep talking about it, and um, I would just emphasize, I guess I'm in Southern California, I can invoke Richard Nixon. Um, one of the important things he used to say, um, and no stupid politician was he, he used to say that, you know, you say something, you say it again, you say it again, by the seventh or eighth time, you are sick of it, and you just repeat it over and over again, they're just beginning to hear it. So one of the things that I've learned from that is we have to keep saying it, we have to say it in different ways, we have to make people see it, but we have to keep repeating the fact that this disease focus is not helpful. And I think what you point out is there are lots of common factors across these measures. Healthcare workers out in the rural areas, uh, sustainable programs, supply chains, we can go on and on, uh, uh, addressing poverty, you know, et cetera. Okay. And I think that's key. One of the you know, important things about family planning is it actually is one of those things that uh, if we improve the health of the population, it takes care of itself by about half a generation. Right? We know that once kids begin to survive, parents actually accommodate to that and their uh, uh, reproductive rate goes down and the delay is about a half a generation there. So. My best excuse for not putting it uh, in there, and it's not a good excuse, is that if you actually uh, in, uh, reduce the child mortality, the under five child mortality, that actually is a, a very effective family plan planning technique. Equity is one of these great squishy values. So the question is, how do you uh, uh, actually operationalize equity? Uh, is it rural-urban equity? Is it young-old equity, et cetera? I actually don't, I mean, it's a big value, but beneath the value, you need to be very specific about what dimension of equity you want to uh, emphasize. You know, Marcia Sen wrote a great book on, on equality where he pointed out that, you know, even libertarians can claim that they're for equality. Uh, and so it's, I, I don't know that saying equity is... Uh, uh, going to be great, unless what you mean by is equity to live out, you know, 70 years, and that we have to figure out 
uh, how to distribute that. But you're still going to have to get down to particular dimensions that you mean. So I, I focus on the dimensions and, and the kinds of interventions. So look at the regions that have non-communicable diseases as a problem. There are two things going on. Number one, people are already living a long time. So I don't think, you know, from a standpoint of we want people to live a full life, we'd like them to live out 60, 70 years, non-communicable diseases is still the thing that's cutting that short more than communicable diseases. If you get heart disease at 60, it's a tragedy. Don't let, get me wrong. I don't want to say it's not a tragedy. Look, I'm an oncologist. It's a disease, disease of old age. But it's less of a tragedy than a kid dying at four from pneumonia. I'll say that. Second, the places where you get non-communicable diseases is a serious problem turn out to be countries that are moving from low-income, the 49 low-income countries, to middle-income countries. They can pay for it themselves. Uh, or if not exactly themselves, then more likely themselves. The 49 poorest countries, right, can't pay for it themselves. Look, everyone's touting Rwanda as this big, fantastic success story, blah, blah, blah. What proportion of the Rwandan healthcare budget does Rwanda cover, right? Less than half. The rest of the world's still picking up half, okay? So the issue is, it's the 49 countries, they can't pay for it. Whereas the countries where non-communicable diseases is the, is the growing, if not the problem, they're already rich enough to, if not take up all of that money, then most of it. I'm interested, right, the hat I was arguing is, you're advising the president, you're whispering into Barack Obama's ear, where does the next dollar go? Or where, when we're making the cuts because of the sequester, where do we take it away from? That's the context. That's why I think it's non-communicable uh, non diseases take a second, uh, uh, a backseat, still, still, when we think about the global health aid to communicable diseases. Thank you very much and appreciate your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.